Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM at Across Town. I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And this week, my guest is Jacob Davis, who's a senior associate at Archimania, uh, a local, very well-known local architecture firm. And today we're going to be talking about carbon neutral corridors. And before you just like turn it off, thinking that just sounds like a very wonky topic right out of the box. It's actually very interesting and important, and we're going to explain it. So please continue tuning in and listen to my conversation with Jacob. So Jacob, wait, welcome to Memphis Metropolis. Sure. I'm an architect. I uh, went to school at Georgia Tech in Atlanta and got a bachelor's and a master's degree there. I um, met my wife who's from Memphis, and that's what brought me to Memphis I've been at Archimania about eight years, and um, Archimania is an architecture firm that's been here in Memphis for about 25 years and um, founded by um, our partners that are still here. And we work on a wide variety of projects across the city and beyond, um, but really focus a lot on Memphis and how we can allow design to be accessible to people and really reflect the character of the city. Um, some of the projects that we've um, recently done are Hadaloo Theater uh, in, in Overton Square, um, right down the street from another project, Ballet Memphis. And then we've also worked on quite a few um, outdoor performance venues like Live at the Garden at the Memphis Botanic Garden or the Grove at, at GPAC, the Germantown Performing Arts Center. And we don't just work on um, performance venues. We work on a wide variety of projects um, from office um, and healthcare uh, to custom homes, um, churches. We work on a wide variety of projects. Really what we're trying to do is uh, distill an authenticity to each client and see how um, design can be represented for them in built form. And so we think of uh, each opportunity that we work with a client as, an, uh, as a new way to sort of reflect and showcase who they are here in Memphis and, uh, and even outside of Memphis. But we're really looking for that authentic voice that they have and see how architecture can represent that around us. And so we're open to a lot of different types of projects, but we really try to uh, distill that uh, authenticity with each and every one of them. Well, plus, um, you're working on the Brooks Project in a partnership with Herzog and Demiron, which is a, you know, a, a, a very well-known international firm that's known for, you know, designing cultural institutions all around the world. And that I was at a, you know, at the Brooks last week for sort of the kickoff of some of the renderings, and that's got to be just an unbelievable project to be part of for the firm. Yeah, it's a it's a big opportunity for us. Um, we feel really honored um, to work on it. We realize how important it is for Memphis and how um, significant of a 
a cultural symbol um, an art museum can be. And the Brooks Museum um, is a well-established institution here in Memphis. And working with Herzog and Demiron, as you mentioned, has been a great collaboration um, for which we um, can learn and um, share with them what we um, believe is important about the Memphis area and the Memphis culture and our and the character of our city, sort of the heritage that's here. And they bring um, a, a very vast knowledge of these sort of um, world-renowned museums um, and other cultural buildings. And so far, it's been a really great um, collaboration um, for us with them, and we're excited to see where it goes. Well, I feel like a project like that just really shines a light on Memphis and shines a light on will shine a light on your firm because you're obviously, Archimedes is very well-known locally in the region, but you know, that firm is one, you know, like I said, with the global reputation and people pay attention to the projects. And so to me, that just is, like I said, we'll deliver benefits, um, you know, beyond sort of, you know, the design partnership. Right. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, a sort of experience of their architecture and their design that, even beyond the type of building that it is, it, it sort of draws a crowd. Um, there's a sort of perspective that they bring and an attention to detail and materiality that we think is really um, important for this type of building and this type of institution. But uh, the impact it could have um, for our region, really drawing people um, to Memphis and really um, creating a, a really positive buzz about downtown, I think has... Um, a lot of merit. Okay. Well, of course, I'm a big digressor, and I'm already digressing before we even got to the... But I was at that meeting last week at the Brooks and got very excited about the project again. So... Yes. You know, the the recent client, climate summit in Glasgow has been getting a lot of attention in the news. And, of course, we talk a lot about climate change anyway, but I feel like when when the world's attention is focused on climate change, you know, we think about not only what we can do personally to, to address it, but also what we can do as a community to help, you know, change the trajectory of that. And, you know, one of the ways is really through, you know, rethinking the development pattern um, of a city out of a place. And that's, that's, you know, kind of what we're talking about today, I think. Um, I kind of, in my own mind, reflecting on the conversation we were going to have and was thinking about that. So, so I guess carbon neutral corridors, it's something you are advance it's, it's an idea that you're advancing in Memphis and specifically on Cooper Street where you located your your building a couple years ago and have been doing kind of a pilot project but talk a little bit about what carbon just conceptually what carbon neutral corridors are so carbon neutral corridors became sort of the illustration of an idea that we are sort of trying to share and advocate for within um, a local development model. Our project, um, as you mentioned on Cooper Street, um, is our office. And we really wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to design a new office for ourselves, um, but also really advance a more global understanding for building performance 
especially here in the hot, humid South. Um, there's a few things we have going against us, um, and humidity is one of them. And this opportunity came to us, um, the two buildings that existed on this site, um, one of them is for our office, the other is a tenant space that we have. And we developed a sort of experimental approach to that that allowed us to compare and contrast how the buildings can perform, but also managing a cost model to understand the type of expenses that would be required not only during construction, but ongoing operational expenses in order to justify how building performance can actually be met here in the Mid-South. And if you think about the the two buildings that we're, we're talking about, there's nothing really special about them. They're um, 1950s um, masonry and steel buildings. There's probably um, at least 30 more almost identical to them along the Cooper corridor. And you could apply that to other corridors um, within the city. So the Cooper corridor is, is one area we've kind of specifically focused on to say, this idea doesn't have to just be one uh, one building that is an example. It's a model that could be applied to many buildings along a very similar um, kind of motley crew <laughs> of characters on the Cooper Corridor. So there's this potential to see how uh, the community can see a progressive approach uh, to building renovation and construction, but also it's about an equity for rehabilitating, reinventing existing buildings that have been in that community for a long time that people understand, they may have visited for, at one time or another, and reconnecting the community to those um, buildings. And by making spaces that are that are more equitable for pedestrians, um, better urban design conditions, little pocket parks, spaces that can be shared, um, that provide amenities to a community. And for us, moving to the Cooper Corridor, as you mentioned a couple years ago, we found this, this as an opportunity, obviously anchored on one end by Overton Square, which has really become a much more thriving entertainment district. And at the other end, Cooper Young, which has sort of its own local um, personality with shops and restaurants, the sort of in-between space has all this potential. And we happen to be sort of at the midpoint of that and wanted to be a catalyst for this new idea, this, this maybe new way to think about um, existing buildings, how it relates to the community, how building performance can be proven through existing structures, how all those things can be integrated together. So, so my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, so you acquired this building, and it's really sort of two buildings that are joined by kind of almost like a breezeway. And this is just, it's on the, just if people aren't familiar with it, it's on the west side of the street, just really a couple blocks north of Central. And Archimania is in one half, and then uh, the marketing firm Loaded for Bears on the other half. So my, well, my understanding is that you basically acquired and renovated both of those, but your own offices, you um, you renovated to a much higher uh, standard um, to make it, you know, energy efficient and all the things that go into that. And then the other side, you did a traditional 
renovation, which I'm sure is, was fairly energy efficient, but not to not to like a top standard. So you had the ability to kind of compare them. And and then at the same time, you know, people have this idea in their mind that it's just too expensive. We can't do those kind of renovations because it's just too expensive. But I think you showed that it paid for it. It will pay for itself fairly quickly. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but am I understanding that more or less correctly? Now that's that's very spot on. The buildings are slightly different sizes, um, but for the most part, their construction assembly is identical. And, and so we felt like this was a great opportunity to do exactly what you described by taking um, these two existing buildings, designing one to really uh, experiment and prove an idea about cost and efficiency with a high-performance building um, example. Our office has a 50 kilowatt solar array on the roof and also a geothermal HVAC system in the ground that has horizontal loops that are in our courtyard space and in the surrounding landscaping that help provide a very efficient HVAC system. There's a few other really efficient components, a lighting control system and um, LED lighting, which is becoming more and more standard. Uh, but we basically wanted to to live in the space to prove to ourselves how it needed to be operated to really showcase that and provide that as a as a resource to our clients, to our staff to learn from. And we welcome neighbors and community members in all the time to really see it working. The comparison to that was to really say that conventional building standards, um, which often this would this would meet code, this would actually have some um, energy performance built into it. Um, but a lot of times people stop there. They think there's too much of a premium associated with that. And that was the myth we were really trying to disprove and to really say that you could make these improvements to the building and the environmental payback or the, the, the savings from the environmental investment would be within a 10-year window, which disproves much of the conventional developer logic that you don't see a return on investment until f- much further down the road. Well, plus it seems like another myth is that um, if you want to do really energy efficient building, you have to start from scratch and that that it's not compatible with rehabilitation. Isn't that right? Right. And you see that there's, there's a lot more you can control, obviously, about a new construction building, but there's also a larger embodied carbon footprint. If you think about all the new materials have to come to the site, whether they're you know manufactured here locally or potentially much further away, you have some high carbon processes, um, steel fabrication or concrete has a lot of high carbon material. And in the case of this project, we were able to upcycle the existing concrete slab and terrazzo floors and the steel structure framing with the exterior masonry and really be able to minimize our carbon footprint for the construction process by 67%. It's really um, pretty significant in the grand scheme of things. That is. Well, and I wish, um, you know, I want to, I started, you know, doing this show, you know, really during COVID when it wasn't appropriate to go out into the community for the most part. But I want to start going out and doing some more shows and the locations where I'm interviewing people. And now I'm wishing that we had come down to your office and we had done it because I could have had a tour at the same time. But the, um, but the, of course the, I haven't been inside the building, but the exterior is all transformed and is, you know, beautiful. Um, that whole section of Cooper 
you know, the former two printing across the street mm-hmm. um, and was redeveloped by Lehman Roberts. And that whole portion of Cooper has really had a really nice facelift. Right. And I think that, I mean, there's, there's obviously more opportunity along the street, but we're really wanting to take some of the existing uses, some of the existing resources, the buildings themselves, and figuring out how they can be upcycled within this framework um, there really is a lot of good bones to the community, to the existing building stock, and the proximity to the adjacent neighborhood is so well connected that it has the ability to really grow and thrive and support um, mixed uses, retail, um, new uses. Um, it's really an area that we think has a lot of opportunity for growth. For sure. Well, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Jacob Davis from Archimania, and we're talking about carbon neutral corridors, which is a, a new, um, really a new proposal to it's really an urban corridor redevelopment model that is. Um, and actually, Jacob, I wanted to mention and slash ask you about that, that I saw, um, I guess, in Daily Memphian that that you guys won, you know, a National Innovation Award for this. So this is something, this is kind of a new idea that's really coming out of Memphis. Absolutely. We submitted this to Fast Company last year for their world-changing ideas. And though this seems sort of a of an ordinary proposal, we're trying to advocate that it has such significant impact if it were applied and made more accessible. A lot of this information um, is generally understood at only a single building level. And we believe that through our platform as architects and then our ability to engage the public, um, to meet with different clients, to actually explain the building science behind a project, that we have the opportunity to, f- to broadcast not only the information, but how an idea could impact a community um, at a much larger scale. We project that along the Cooper Corridor, if you took this model and applied it to over 500,000 square feet across 88 buildings, that you actually could uh, power 4,000 homes annually or take 8,000 cars off the road each year. The sort of idea that that renovating buildings to a higher carbon standard um, could really have a substantial impact. And that would just be this Cooper corridor alone. Well, that's amazing because think about it, Cooper's not that long a street. I mean, in the greater scheme of things, um, that's really, really impressive. And um, I was going to ask you if you had sort of projected out, obviously you haven't, it seems to me. And of course, I'm very interested in, in public policy, but it seems to me, I mean, the government offers incentives for, you know, home homeowners for sure, maybe other commercial building owners from time to time to put in, you know, solar panels or geothermal, you know, sometimes that's in the, in the, it comes in the form of tax credits. But anyway, there, the government has incentivized people using these more energy efficient um, models. And it seems to me as going back to sort of the Glasgow discussion, um, that, there's more and more pressure on going to be more and more pressure on countries and the United States to make an impact. And this seems like a way doesn't tell writing a check necessarily. This seems like a natural way for, um, for the government to incentivize um, 
you know, these kind of corridors or places that want to join together in this work, don't you think? Yeah, I think there's a there's a great opportunity. Like you're saying, there's a big push, a lot of momentum um, to really move this topic to the forefront. And I think what might be so significant about the climate summit that's going on in Glasgow right now is it's really building upon the Paris Agreement in 2015. Um, a part of that agreement was that everyone would, all the participating countries would reconvene in six years and really map their progress. And I think this idea of accountability is really important. If there is no measuring stick, if there are no numbers that we're trying to target and we're trying to hold ourselves to, we can't achieve these goals. And so we've We've personally, as, as a practice, really engaged this process to understand the information and try to share this information because we feel like without real targets, without real goals, there can't be accountability in reaching the targets and the goals any time in, in, in the near future. And we're hearing that you know there, there's a, a 10-year goal at 2030, but really by 2050, if we've not made significant changes... Um, then we're really going to be in much more uh, severe condition as far as a global climate crisis. Yeah, it's um, it's really unbelievable listening to those discussions. You know, there's very few situations in life where I, I'm sort of happy that I'm getting older. And, you know, I have to say, that's kind of one of them. I mean, I'm scared for the future of the Earth from a climate perspective. And um, it's just scary. It really is to think about it. Um, and it's like moving, turning the Titanic, you know, it's making so many incremental changes over a long period of time. Anyway, I, I digress again. But um, so, so on Cooper specifically, I mean, you probably don't want to tell me about who you property owners you've been talking to, but I know you've been, you know, talking to property owners and developers, convening, you want to do more of that? Like what, what have you done and what's the plan to try to really build some, to get some traction around this great idea? Sure. So we've been in the community for about two years now. Um, COVID was a little bit of a, a, a long pause as far as how we could engage the community as, in a specific way. But we have, um, a lot of connections within the neighborhoods, within a lot of the business owners. And then there's also sort of a couple other stakeholders that we're working to involve property owners, um, the different community organizations, and then also uh, interested parties that want to come to Cooper Street. So there seems to be a, a very positive idea about how um, this area can grow. We, in the last six months, as things have um, become a little bit more social in the world. Um, we've taken a lot of opportunity to bring people to our office to really show them um, the opportunity that's in front of them if they're interested in this type of environment or to really understand the model at a higher level. Um, so we've opened up our courtyard. Um, we've we've um, opened the doors from time to time with certain community members to bring them in, to show them um, and demonstrate exactly how we work as a practice, but also how the building is a model that can be replicated. And we hope in the future to really be engaging um, the, the community at large 
um, at a higher level and be able to hold um, meetings and forums and opportunities for people to sort of um, imagine these opportunities with us and see exactly where people um, align and where um, there are opportunities to maybe think more broadly about how uh, Cooper Street can continue to grow and really connect these two existing nodes and strengthen the Midtown area. Well, you know, Cooper is very much in play still from a development perspective. Um, and there's still a lot of buildings that I think over the next several years will, you know, convert from the use that they've had, you know, an insurance agency or whatever to, um, and some of that's un- underway now. So what about um, other local architecture firms? Because, I mean, it seems like Archimedes is not going to get all that work. Other local architecture firms are, are you involving them to try to, you know, get them on board to be thinking about it so they can in turn present to their, present the concept to their clients and say, this is something you should think about. Sure. Um, We have a local um, architect organization that the local AIA Memphis um, organization that we are a part of, um, Almost all our staff is a part of it. And so we have a really great community um, that really supports each other um, quite a bit. Um, in times, I'm sure we're in competition for similar projects, but we're also each other's peers and we're a support group in some ways as well. And so that type of connectivity, we love to see good work that other people are doing and we um, love learning from each other. And I think that that is an opportunity to, to further uh, understand, share ideas, learn from each other, and um, share our successes. And hopefully, we're all on the same page to build a better Memphis and find ways that we really can advocate for the same um, interests um, and and kind of get that momentum going um, from a design collaboration around the city. Well, and and are the buildings that I mean. As as we said at the top of the show, you know, you've done a couple buildings on Cooper, and of course those were new. Um, do those? I mean, I'm sure those were built to fairly high standards from an energy efficiency perspective. But do are they sort of consistent with the whole this whole concept? So within the framework, there's really two or three ways that we can sort of unpack it and understand it um, from a carbon neutral standpoint. There, are, there is an energy efficiency standpoint that a building, a base building provides. There's also the ability for it to offset its operational carbon, which would be its daily energy consumption. So is it able to have high efficiency systems? Can it embrace renewable energy systems? Um, for most of our projects, it's becoming really our new baseline standard. We're setting them up so that in the future, they can have renewable energy Um, for example, solar arrays on the roof of those buildings. And so the infrastructure, whether it's installed today, or as you've mentioned, buildings that have been built recently, or in the near future, they have the ability to be um, supported by renewable energy. There's also a few things that we as a practice really strive to accomplish, and that's using a lot of local material. Mm -hmm. Um, If we can locally source certain products, that in- inherently reduces its carbon footprint just by uh, diminishing the travel distance for the material to get to each construction site. And oftentimes, 
we're working in conjunction with our construction team to minimize the construction waste that they produce on site and we'll manage it and we'll document that. And that's a measuring stick for our construction process as well. Plus that supports a local economy in terms of jobs. And I'm glad to hear that. That's important. So what you're saying is, is on these, um, on the projects you do as a firm now, if they if that there's if they're not relying on renewable energy sources, they're teed up to do so in the future if they're able to go in that direction. That's right. We're we're trying to set up buildings that can last for a very long time. Um, if our design cycle for a building were only twenty five to fifty years, you can imagine the waste that's actually produced from a cycle that's going to repeat itself. But we really want to design open and flexible buildings that not only meet the need today, but they're set up for future uses, but also the ability for future systems to be applied to them. Um, in some ways, we've we've really strived to implement all electric systems. So we know that will be a future cleaner energy source instead of um, having fossil fuels as a base energy system. So if people want to know more about this, um, should we should they just come to the Archimania website or what do you recommend um, if people want to learn more about what you're what you're planning on Cooper or just the sub, you know the, the, the general subject a little bit more? Sure. there's certainly some information on our website www.archimania.com. Um, the project is entitled Carbon Neutral Corridors. Um, there's also a short uh, video, a video film that we've worked on um, with a local videographer to really capture this idea in about three minutes, a very short film that kind of captures the idea. But we are hoping in the very near future, uh, maybe to start the year next year, to start holding larger meetings within the community and so those should be on the horizon soon. And so if you're interested, um, there will be opportunities to participate. I think people are going to be interested in this. I think people are, you know, there's a lot of interest in, you know, a lot of the different, I want to say, you know, urban redevelopment strategies we're seeing here, you know, neighborhood redevelopment, greater bike and pedestrian infrastructure and, you know, this is kind of part and parcel of that making, you know, making the community den- denser. And um, I think they'll, I think there's definitely will be interested, interested in this from the community. So I look forward to hearing more about it. And I hope that, 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 you know, property owners and real estate developers, folks in that Cooper area, well, all over the city, but in particular, it'd be great to have more of that along Cooper, and it could really be a model. I mean, you've got you've got a model now, but it'd be great if that could sort of be a model that um, could could be replicated around the city, but also could be you know a national model for what for how this important. This important problem can be addressed on the community level. No, I think that's exactly what we're targeting. Um, we hope that it reaches um, community development threads, urban design threads, uh, building design and performance, um, architecture from the architecture critics. Uh, we hope that it is something people are talking about um, and change often will bring discussion with it, but we hope that it's a place that people can go and experience and see how they belong in that environment as well. 
So we hope that it's a very equitable process that provides um, places and spaces for people um, that really they can feel like is is a, an environment that they have connected with and they feel a part of, um, and it's a part of the Memphis that they love. Okay, well, that's a great note to end on. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Jacob Davis from Archimania. We've been talking about carbon neutral corridors and their work along Cooper to to advance that idea. So Jacob, th- thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, the second half of this week's show. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM, and I'm joined by regular commentator Charlie Santo, who heads up the City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis. So welcome back, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Emily. Good to be here. So Charlie, even though, you know, you've been a great commentator, I think you enjoy being on the show, you know, you secretly wish it was a music show. (laughs) And (laughs) um, so, and, and most of the time you send me a song that you think is very appropriate for the discussion. And I, I guess I should, if people are just joining us, uh, the topic is, um, the official title is Carbon Neutral Corridors, sort of it's really about, um, you know, strategies, a specific strategy for addressing climate change through development patterns. So one particular example that we're going to talk more about on Cooper Street. But anyway, Charlie, I know you had a particular song that just spoke to you about this topic. So lay that on me. Yeah, I've got a, you know this, I've got a song for everything. Uh, so you and I have talked about this project I'm working on using songs, using pop music as a tool for teaching and introducing people to, to urban issues. I'm realizing that you can, I've been making these playlists of songs about cities for 11 years now. And the more I sort of play with it, the more I realize that you can really use kind of a diverse community of songs at different genres, different time periods, and put those songs in conversation with each other. And you can really cover a lot of ground in terms of explaining the way cities change and the policies and the social factors that cause those changes and the way different groups of people experience the same city differently during the same time. Um, so that's that's what I'm working on. And so that's why I've always got a, a song in my back pocket for whatever topic we come up with related to cities. So today we're talking about carbon emissions and climate change and the International Climate Summit. So my favorite go-to song on that topic is Nothing But Flowers by the Talking Heads. Do you know that song? I do. Yeah. it's. I don't think it's one of their more well-known songs, but I love it. It's actually one of my favorite songs on my 11 years worth of playlists. Well, if you don't want to sing a few bars, uh, give us a few lyrics that you well, think are particularly relevant. Yeah. So I'll tell you why, uh, why it's my go-to song for this topic. It's a song that works in conversation with the more well-known song, uh, which is Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, right? So everybody knows that one. We paved paradise to put up a parking lot. So in Nothing But Flowers, it's sort of set in, in some distant time or maybe an alternative timeline in which the built environment has given way back to nature. So everything is kind of covered over in nature. 
And the protagonist of the song is sort of bemoaning uh, the loss of all of our man-made trappings and excesses. So here he is surrounded by trees and flowers and mountains. And rather than enjoying that, he's, he's having nostalgia for our conveniences like 7-Elevens and candy bars. So I'll give you a few lyrics. Uh, once there were parking lots, now it's a peaceful oasis. This was a pizza hut, now it's all covered with daisies. I miss the honky-tonks, Dairy Queens, and 7-Elevens. <laughs> so... If you read it straight, you know, you miss the fact that it's satire. It's a complete satire, and it's so subtle that I think a lot of people miss it uh, and miss the fact that it's really a critique of our modern excess and consumerism. Okay. Um, that's our song for the day. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I can't sing at all, so I'm not going to – I also am not going to try to sing yeah. any of it, but – so, Charlie, I know you had an opportunity. Um, the first half of the show, I had Jacob Davis as my guest, who's an architect with Archimania. And he talked about a really interesting initiative they have, which is to, they've done work to make their building very environmentally friendly. And they've, they're, they're leading up an effort to try to bring other buildings along Cooper Street you know, into the fold, as it were, make similar enhancements and, and, and they re when they renovate and then, you know, presumably have, you know, major energy savings and a lot of other benefits to which I think we'll talk about. So I know you had a chance to listen to that interview and had some thoughts about it. So let me know what, what when you reflected on it, what were your thoughts? Yeah. So I, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, I was not familiar with the project or with the concepts beforehand. Um, but after listening, I, I love it. I love the idea of, of upcycling buildings. I do think there's truth to that, that, old, that, that saying the greenest building is the one that's already built. Um, so that's all great. But there are, there are three things in particular about that conversation that I found remarkable and really refreshing. Um, so one, the first is that it's, it's really an original idea. So when you reached out to me about today's show and said the topic was carbon neutral corridors, my first thought was, okay, which big think tank or big philanthropy's new idea is this, <laughs> right? Is this, it's, a, it's a smart growth America led initiative. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what I was, is this Congress for new urbanism? Is this uh, the MacArthur foundation's newest thing? Because we see so much of that. Uh, these types of entities champion a new cause and maybe put some funding with it. And well, no, Memphis is a hotbed of innovation, and this is a great example. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's, it's not that. It's just Jacob and Archimania trying to make a difference, right? Recognizing that buildings represent almost 40% of our energy use and our, our emissions. And so they're just saying, hey, we design buildings. Let's, let's see if we can do it better. Uh, so that's one. The second thing is that it's really this beautiful experiment, right? They didn't just say, all right, we want to make our office space more efficient, so we'll use solar and geothermal. They made it a, a research endeavor. Um, so they retrofit these two buildings at the same time to see how much of a difference the energy efficient steps actually made uh, because they cost more to do, which is the main deterrent in doing them. Uh, so they're really, they're really doing the research for everyone else to show us that there is a return on that investment uh, beyond just helping to save the planet. There's actually a financial return. Well, and they did the calculation for all the buildings on Cooper. Yeah. And that and that's the third thing is that they're they're not just doing doing it for themselves, right? They're not content with just doing their part. They're saying, all right, here we did the calculations. We can do this in every other building on this on this corridor and, and really make it a, a carbon corridor. Um, so I thought those three things were were really 
refreshing, inspiring, um, and and pretty awesome. I do too, and I hope they're successful. I, I think I mentioned this. You know, um, Cooper is still. You know, there's still a lot of development on Cooper, and um, and I expect there will be. That that corridor is very much been evolving, particularly outside of Overton Square. Mm-hmm. Um, that corridor has really been evolving over the last five or ten years, and it's kind of an organic process. You know, insurance agencies, metal shops, things are closing. It's you know more demand for restaurant space and retail space and it's kind of a slow roll almost on that street. And I expect that probably that will continue for the next little while. And so I feel like there are opportunities to bring other property owners along and actually achieve some of what they're trying to achieve. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. And I think that that's there, that is the right place to, to sort of have that focus right now. Um, because really they're doing it building by building at this point. Right? If you think about the concept of a carbon neutral corridor, um, it has to be more than just one building that's, that's taking some certain steps. And they've done, uh, they, you know, they've done a, a, they've taken a massive first step with their own building and demonstrating the effectiveness of it, um, and controlling what they can, can control within the design of their building. But to reach the point where this is a carbon neutral corridor takes, takes more than one building at a time or takes more than one building, right? It takes them spreading the message to others and that's what they're doing. Um, but I think it's interesting to think beyond just the building, right? And, I, and what I think is really, one of the things I think is really interesting is that we as, as city planners often think that architects are incapable of thinking beyond just the individual structures that they're building. Uh, but that's not the case here. They're really thinking also about more broad development patterns. For sure. Well, and a lot of architects are. I don't. I don't know the the case with um, the principal of the Darkomania, but a lot of architects are also planners. So people do wear both hats. <laughs> I, and I know. I know several that do. Yes, our friend Andy Kitzinger falls in that category. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So that's what I think about is. At well, you're right. I mean, Archimania can really, yeah, they can sort of control, not control, but they really, their expertise is the buildings. Yeah. But to make the street, what other, um, I guess, what other elements, let's just talk about Cooper for a second. If Cooper, if Cooper were to lower its overall carbon footprint, what else would be beneficial aside from these building retrofits? Uh, yeah, so to me, that's the question of how do you go from it, from it being a building to it being a corridor, right? How do you, how do we get to the the corridorness of it? Um, and I think that that Jacob sort of describes that what what's necessary in some of the other language that's been used. I don't know that he talked about it uh, in your discussion, but if you look at some of the material on Archimedes' website, he talks about the corridor in terms of having anchor institutions that sit, sit, situate themselves strategically, connecting with technology companies, business incubators and creatives, uh, and districts that strive for density, walkability, and easy access to various transit options, retail and restaurants, and mixed-use development. Those are Archimania's words. And I think that's that's the correct thinking, right? That's, that's how you go from it just being a building to being a corridor, um, and, and it, it being different than the norm. So it's transportation and 
Yeah, so it's bigger. It's bigger than just the building, and it's bigger than doing than, than what one firm can do building by building. It's got to take a large scale, coordinated change, and it's got to take public policy, right? And so they've done a nice job of doing the research that public policy can learn from. Um, and I don't know enough about building code to talk about policy and requirements that might you know make the kind of interventions they've used standard practice, but. I know that what's become the norm in our land use patterns, kind of our sprawling built environment, is a massive contributor of carbon emissions. Uh, and we didn't get there one individual decision at a time, right? Policy got us there and policy needs to reverse that. So it's decades of policy and government programs that have encouraged and subsidized sprawl and decentralization and highway building and auto dependency and a separation of land uses. And so the idea of, of districts with density and walkability and access to transit options and mixed uses is kind of the reverse of the way we've, we've built our cities in the last 50 years, particularly in, in mid-sized cities like Memphis. We've done, a, we've done a, a bad job of mixed use and density, and that's what we need to start seeing change. So what are some, I mean, just getting granular for a second, like what are some of the on the Cooper corridor, what are some other things that could approve it from a carbon perspective? Like I'm thinking more street trees. Um, yeah. Like what are some other various, I'm thinking about like if the, if the, aside from the buildings, you've kind of got me thinking. So aside from the buildings, what can, you know, government nonprofits, what they could, could they do on Cooper? Yeah. What would their, could their contributions be? Um, from a carbon perspective. Yeah, I mean, street trees are great. Trees are a, a sink for, for carbon emissions. They, you know, they, they mitigate that. Uh, less impervious surface. So like they did uh, with, their, with their property, you know, when, you, when you've got areas that are parking lots, you can do those with impervious, with, with pervious surface instead of impervious. Maybe shared parking. Yeah, shared parking. Um, some of the stuff that we've talked about on previous shows in terms of micro-mobility, um, I think... You know, we've talked about other areas where that makes sense. I think the Cooper Corridor is also an area where that makes sense. So here we're talking about how do we move around where we're making short trips, right? We know that 35% of our, our, of our vehicle trips are two miles or less. And Jacob talked about the corridor, kind of at the, the, at the north, it's Overton Square. At the south, it's Cooper Young. Uh, there's about a mile in between, right? So if I'm, if I'm working in a, in a co-work space on Cooper, toward the Cooper Young end of it, and I want to go have lunch in Overton Square. Can I do that without getting in my car or walking a mile? Um, so those shared use micromobility options like a, a bike share or a scooter that I can just pick up on the sidewalk and, and make my trip with are things that would help and get people out of their cars and, and, and mitigate some of the emissions that way. Uh, and so we've talked about that in the past in terms of what the medical district collaborative is doing. Uh, makes a ton of sense there where you may be taking short trips from the medical district to downtown. And I think that makes sense here as well. And and also, you know, thinking of things that are coming down uh, the pipeline, like the walk-on union, right? I think we'll see some of that there as well, where people that are working, living in that in that area uh, are going to be making short trips to downtown and having those micro-mobility options would, would help there as well. Well, that actually... Um, race is something that I wanted to bring up. But first of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. So Charlie, um, you know, reflecting a little bit about um, my interview with Jacob, but also sort of the larger subject, it seems like, you know, and what can cities, you know, the bigger question of what can cities do 
to minimize their their you know contribution to the climate crisis and it seems like the you know what we've talked about many times you know the comp- the 3.0 comprehensive plan and its emphasis on building up and not out and on right. density i mean and some of the strategies in there the anchor the anchor in the neighborhoods i mean it seems like we're doing some things now that are going to that should move us change the trajectory a little bit you know, I, I think so. I, I think I think we have reason to be hopeful. Uh, we're starting to see people pay attention to this, um, and the anchors. You know, that's also that's another point uh, in terms of this is kind of taking a, a thousand small cuts to to make an impact here. Um, but anchor institutions can play a large role, right? So, to define the terminology, uh, we're talking about large scale, big employers that are place based that are not going anywhere. Hospitals and colleges, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think about how those entities interact with sort of the radius around them. Um, and if they're thoughtful about it, they can really shrink the size of their environmental impact while creating a positive economic impact within that radius. So if you have a large anchor institution like the University of Memphis or a set of anchors like medical institutions that employ a lot of people and spend a lot of money, if they can incentivize their employees to live within that radius, Right, that shortens commute trips and improves neighborhoods. Uh, if those employees then support local businesses within that radius, that's another bonus. And if those anchor institutions sort of focus their institutional purchasing within that radius, buying local, local procurement, that's keeping money in the local economy. And those locally sourced goods obviously have a smaller environmental impact as well. So uh, you mentioned that you had you you wanted to get up on your soapbox on a slightly different topic, but before we do that, um, anything else on the carbon neutral corridors that you think is important that we didn't talk about? I, I mean, the only other thing in, in in my mind thinking about this is is just the workspace itself. Like, is what's the future, and that's what everybody's talking about now in terms of you know how we respond to the pandemic. Um, is the office space going to still be a place that we need to go to every day um, and what that might mean in terms of the built environment and carbon emissions, right? So we saw during the, in 2020, uh, it was the first time in decades that global carbon dioxide emissions actually fell. Um, and that was because everything kind of came to a standstill. We've, Everyone was stuck at home. Yeah. We've quickly gotten back to above where we were previously, but um, you know, if we think about, People doing more work from home, uh, maybe maybe the commute commutes decrease and, and use of buildings decrease. Um, it's just something that's that's kind of a, an ongoing question. Okay, well, so uh, changing the subjects a bit, I'm gonna let you get up on your soapbox because um, I know you're on you're on sabbatical this semester, working on this new book about. Songs and Cities, which you're going to have to do now that it's out there, <laughs> this new book. But also, I think you've probably had a chance to sort of reflect a little on um, just on your, you know, teaching and your classes you teach. And I think that's that's my impression about sabbaticals is it's also a little bit of a, a step away and a time for reflection. Yeah. So, so share share one of those or share a little bit about that with us. Yeah. So one of the things I've been thinking about and rethinking is how I, t- I, I teach a lot of the classes I teach have to do with economics for planners. Um, and I've been rethinking how I want to frame that in those conversations. 
And a lot of that has to do with, you know, as we have this increasing awareness of, of the way our economic activities are ruining the planet, there's a lot of new ideas emerging about how we, how we envision our economy. And there's a, a couple of books that I've been reading uh, that are related and make the connection between our growing concern for the planet and how we think about those economic systems. Uh, so one is Prosperity Without Growth by Tim Jackson, and the other is called Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth. And sort of the, the central notion in both is that our society's consistent focus on constant economic growth is really the major problem. Um, so, you know, we talked about the, the UN Climate Summit that's going on. And the reality is that the ideas that are espoused there are likely very counter to the talks that are going on at the G20 Economic Summit. Those things don't really go together. Um, and that's because the, the economic policy of nearly every country and therefore every city is to aim for economic growth over time, right? Increase wealth per person, expand our ability to, to buy things. Uh, and because of that, uh, or related to that, the, the fact that the, the indicator uh, of economic health at the national level is, is GDP, right? The gross domestic product, which is the, the value of all the goes and services produced within a, within a, within a country's border. That's, that's the measure of, of whether we're doing good or bad as an economy. And that translate to every, to, tr translates to every scale, global to national, to regional, to individual, and, and back up again. Um, why is that the measure? The short answer is is because economists. <laughs> but, but as a measure, and, and and it's a generator of wealth. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. That's that's what it's all about. Is that you know we 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 think about the individual as trying to maximize their utility, utility, and we translate their utility into their willingness to spend money. So more money, therefore, means more utility. Um, but the, the GDP as a, as a measure of well-being is pretty flawed, right? It doesn't assign any value to things like time spent with family uh, or leisure or things created within a household for use within the household. But Delicious meals value. eaten and prepared. Yeah, right. But it does assign value to the production of, of like toxins, like nerve gas, right? Those things have value in the GDP. Um, and the other thing is that it doesn't care if the things that are produced last, right? So if your washer or your dryer lasted twice as long, you'd be, you'd be as well off with half as much consumption. You wouldn't need to buy a new one every five years. But our measure wants society to make more washing machines, and that is killing our planet. Uh, so the, the funny thing is, though, as that becomes more apparent, the response, for the most part, has been to try to find ways to keep doing the growth without doing the destruction, rather than saying, we need to chill out on the growth. It's like, how do, how do we keep doing the growth without doing the destruction? Hence the sustainable fashion and... Right. Yes. Yes. Every one of those buzzword big ideas that are backed by a big philanthropy and then get government funding behind them. Or just well-meaning uh, companies. I mean, companies that want to make jeans, but they want to do it, they want to sincerely do it more responsibly. I mean, there's certainly people innovating in that space. Um, well, the, the interesting thing, and of course I'm, I'm completely on board with this, but it's hard to wrap your mind around changing that, that oh, way yeah. of thinking, because I think, um, I mean, even now there's been, you know, the, the last couple of years, there's been a, there's been, you know, a lot of emphasis on the growing, income gap and the wealth gap between the bottom and the, the top in terms of income. And I think the people at the, I mean, some people at the top are per, 
are concerned about it. And they'll say, oh, well, maybe we've been paying our employees $12 an hour. We'll pay them 15 Well, as long as I continue to make a gazillion dollars and the company is growing, I'm okay with that. I'll share some of that. And this is sounds cynical, but I mean, in a no-growth environment, you're talking about, you know, the pie is not getting any bigger. Right. And so your share, your give, you know, your share of the pie, you know, now that now you're at the top of the pyramid, you know, if you're in a pie, you might have the biggest share, but your share over time is not necessarily it's, it might get smaller as um if, if prosperity is achieved without the growth. I just think it's gonna be so hard to exactly. to um get people to, you know, shift their thinking it's a giant shift in mindset and it's you know i don't know how to get there um and and i realized that you know there are lifestyle changes that i probably need to make to as i'm sort of pondering these things i mean i'm sitting here i'm drinking my coffee out of a a self-heating battery-powered mug right (laughs) you know what (laughs) that's Uh, bad I realized that uh, I'm a I didn't know they even made that kind of thing. <laughs> well, it has a little charging station it sits on. It's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, so it's this, the concept is, is that people need to, to sort of come to grips with is, is degrowth, right? Um, I mean, there are people that try to push these new ideas, sustainable growth, uh, the circular economy that are all about, you know, how that are, are about decoupling that growth from environmental destruction. But there are other people that say that that's just not possible. Uh, you know, if we take circular economy um, theories and put them in practice, so rather than taking materials out of the ground, extracting them, making things with them, using those things, then throwing them out, we start to reuse some things in the process, remanufacture equipment, use the waste that's produced to produce something else. That's kind of the circular economy concept. Um, but research has shown that as we do that, we end up making the products cheaper to make and therefore we sell more of them and we end up making more stuff. So this is weird rebound effects where we're not actually shrinking our ecological footprint at all. Uh, we're just making more stuff for, for, for a cheaper cost and just putting more of it out there. Um, so to come to grips with the idea that there is some sort of happy medium where, yeah, there are countries that need to increase their prosperity. There are uh, groups of folks domestically that need to increase their degree of prosperity so that we can all get to some kind of middle place and having some folks be okay with, you know, some industries facing decline. Um, it's a lot to, to ponder and I don't have the answer to it, but it's just something that I'm, I'm sort of grappling with right now as I think about what do I want to teach students about how planning and the economy interact. Well, I was going to say, I think I look more... Uh, I look forward to hearing more about it. I do think to the extent you're teaching, you know, economics, economic development in the context of a planning curriculum, um, it really makes sense um, yeah. to at least incorporate some of that, if if not the entire approach, incorporate some of that thinking. So, yeah. So, so um, I, like I look forward to hearing more about it and, um, but sadly we're out of time. All right. So, but um but thanks for coming on, Charlie. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. My guest has been Charlie Santo from University of Memphis. And the first half of the show was Jacob Davis from Archimania talking about primarily about carbon neutral corridors. So thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Emily. If you 
You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.